Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the New York City-focused investment real estate podcast where experts share valuable insights, answer questions, and tell some real-world stories that'll get you thinking about how you can tweak your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. I am your host, Bill Widener. And did I just say New York City focused? Yes, I did. Realty Speak is dedicated to sharing the stories and strategies that impact investment property owners of the Bronx, Brooklyn, Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. Today, February 16th, and one week before the third anniversary of Realty Speak, we are on the Hudson River in Battery Park City and welcome back Tina Larson of the Folsom Group, who will be my co-host today, along with our guest Matt McHugh of Sea Power Energy management. Listeners, we are in for an energetic discussion today, pun intended. As you may recall, Tina and her partner, Mark, appeared three years ago, and they were episode number one of Realty Speak. Here we are three years and 35 episodes later and going strong, and I'm totally psyched to have Tina not only back on the show, but as my co-host for this episode, who from the perspective of her unique approach to cost management for co-ops, condos, and other investment property is here to discuss with Matt demand response and some New York City local laws that are energy consumption related so that you can, well, build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. Tina, awesome to have you back and thanks for co-hosting. Matt, thank you for being here to share your knowledge and insights today. Excited to be here, Bill. Thank you so much for having me back. Thanks, Bill. Looking forward to taking part in Reality Speak. Appreciate you having me on. Everyone knows that Tina's here because she's my co-host today, and uh, her and Mark, her partner in the Folsom Group, were on episode number one. But the reason you're here, Matt, is because uh, we have a common connection who we have a lot of respect for in terms of him and his organization, Jay Solly, from Sun, which is Sustainable United Neighborhoods. I want to do a shout out to Jay. Uh, for introducing the two of us so that we could make this possible today. That's right, Bill. Uh, Sustainable United Neighborhoods is a very strong partner of Sea Powers. Uh, love working with Jay. Uh, he can be found at uh, sunbrooklyn.org. That's www.sunbrooklyn.org. Tina, let's do a quick refresher so the listeners understand how the Fulton Group helps, especially now when the typical revenue stream of rent income is impacted by the pandemic. And expense management becomes even more important of a focus. So I'm the co-founder and owner of the Folsom Group. We work with co-op and condo boards and apartment building owners to reduce their operating costs and to increase their profits and to be able to, for co-ops and condos, be able to not increase maintenance or reduce the risk of increased, increased maintenance. We work on all areas, so you might have heard about uh, energy auditors. They specialize in reducing energy, which is related to what we're talking about today, but we look at all expense line items. We will look at all the different revenues coming in. So it can be like laundry contracts, and then it's operating expenses. And that is not limited. I mean, energy is a big part of that, but it's not only energy. It's also water, insurance, as small expensive, as small as telephone, 
and exterminating services and larger ones like elevator service contracts. And then it's all the different project upgrades for the building. So upgrades like replacement of elevators, roofs, uh, windows, etc. We renegotiate all of those different line items and we save buildings hundreds of thousands of dollars. And when it comes to line items, I don't think people realize how many there are. Give an example of uh, you know what you, what you typically see when you're going in, you're looking at the budget of a co-op or a condo or the expense line items of an investment property. If it's a doorman building with a full staff with unions, then a typical there are typically 150 line items. And we compare every single one of those line items. Your service is kind of unique because you're taking all the risk up front, aren't you? Yes, we are. Yeah, explain to everybody how that works. If a company hires McKinsey and Company, they're charged millions of dollars up front to do pretty much what we do, but we do it for a very targeted, underserved market. We do not charge an upfront fee. Our fee is based on savings for two years. So year number three, our clients, they keep 100% of our savings. So uh, you take it on a contingency basis, you do the analysis. Obviously, there's an incentive there for you to create savings. For two years, you receive a percentage of those savings. And then in the third year, the client receives 100% of the savings. Yes, that's exactly true. Oh, let me add one more thing. When it comes to the contingency, because we cannot charge until things have actually taken place, we project manage all implementations. So we actually oversee and make sure that whatever recommendations we give, we don't only hand boards or apartment building owners their recommendations. We make sure that they do happen. We get on the phone, oversee projects, speak with contractors, etc., to make sure that it happens. So full circle. Yes, full circle. Realty Speak is all about stories. So tell me a story. Tell me a story. Give me at least one example of some savings that were realized. So I'm going to tell you about an elevator project, which is kind of crazy. The board hired an elevator consultant to replace three elevators. The board then brought us in. We spoke, we brought in a different elevator uh, consultant and looked at the review, the scope of the project. It turned out that one of the motors is three elevators. And one of the motors was not needed because it was replaced 10 years ago. So that was in, that was removed from the scope. Other than that, the scope was exactly the same. We renegotiated with the same vendor that had was the lowest bidder at $750,000. We renegotiated with that same vendor and they came down to $504,000. You saved around $250,000, a quarter of a million dollars. That's correct. Yeah, that goes a long way. (laughs) 30%. I mean, that's just unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And then obviously you got a portion of that savings and I'm sure they were very happy to share it with you. Yes. Love it. But enough about me. Matt, that brings me to my first question about demand response. What is it? When was it established? And why? But first, tell us about yourself and Sea Power Energy Management. Thanks, Dana. Um, Sure, I'll start with myself first. I've been working in the uh, energy market now for a good uh, 10 plus years in New York. Prior to uh, my work in the energy space, 
Uh, I worked in uh, IT, you know, Fortune 500 companies, uh, working for uh, Oracle Corporation, world's largest software provider, and uh, EMC Corporation, which was at one point the world's largest technology storage provider. Uh, when I moved down to New York in 2008, uh, that's when I got into the uh, real estate world and energy efficiency. Um, I was employee number four of a startup by the name of Code Green Solutions, and uh, that was back in 2010, and uh, spent seven years there, and I was able to build that firm up with my colleagues, so about 40 strong, and was able to win roughly about 30% of the New York real estate space in square footage perspective for our sustainability work, which meant lead certification, Energy Star benchmarking, ASHRAE Level 2 energy audits, local law 87 compliance and things of that nature, which really helped build our business uh, for the class A and class B market in New York City. Um, I moved from there to C-Power, and uh, that will actually allow me to answer two questions with uh, with one answer, which is, uh, what is demand response? Uh, fortunately, uh, working with C-Power, uh, C-Power is the patriarch of demand response. Uh, started roughly 20 years ago under the name of Consolidated Power Lines, and um, the company really got its, its root in demand response, in working with the power generators, so Con Edison of the world, and working with the energy end users, which are these Class A, Class B properties. And really where C Power is, we kind of sit in the middle of that. And the power generation, they roughly account for close to about 90% of the megawatts used within New York. The energy users, similar to that, they are account for about 90% of that. Where demand response fits is that you know things aren't always perfect. Uh, a plant may go down. A transmission line may go down. So in the event that that happens, C-Power, a demand response company, kind of steps in line and works with the end user, which is some of these Class A properties, Class B properties, to have them shed load when needed. So that shedding of energy load allows for the grid to rebalance and assure that uh, what, when, what energy is needed goes to the correct areas that is needed. And by doing that, provides resiliency and great continuity uh, to assure that there's no brownouts or blackouts. Um, what, what, what's nice about that is when we're able to uh, reach out to these Class A, Class B properties to actually shed that load, we're able to compensate on that. So for that load that they're able to shed, they see meaningful dollars back and revenue back into their bottom line for participating in the grid and um, giving grid resiliency to demand response. This impacts all the different uh, local laws, the one where we have to reduce our carbon output? It goes alongside of it. The carbon output law, that's Local Law 97. Yeah. Uh, that was passed in 2019 by Councilman Costa Constantinides. And what that law is looking at, it's really groundbreaking legislation. And what that law is looking to do is lower carbon emissions in all buildings in New York City over 25,000 square feet. Um, starting in 2025, rolling all the way out to 2050. It starts with uh, somewhat, I would say, reasonable carbon emission thresholds to really ramping up to 2050, where the city's goals are 80% reduction in carbon emissions by that time frame. How are they going to do that? They're going to do that through uh, multiple ways. They're going to do it through energy efficiency. They're going to do it through renewables. And they're going to do it through distributed energy resources to really make this all work for the city to reduce as much carbon emission as possible. Buildings are starting to move forward with it now uh, to comply by 2025, which really means that they're going to have to get their carbon emissions reduced 
per the 2025 threshold by 2024, because that's actually the first year that that carbon reduction is measured. When you were explaining everything, Matt, you, you used the word compensate. In other words, the, the buildings that are taking part in the demand response program are being compensated. So is it income? Is it savings? Is it both? It's more income than savings. You are reducing energy. Uh, that energy reduction, that curtailment, is going to be over the course of four hours. The demand response programs in New York uh, require that window of reduction. So you'll see some um, reduction in energy. But when you're reducing that energy, what you're saying is you're actually taking that block of energy and selling it back to the grid, and you're selling that at a much higher rate than you would actually be purchasing it in. So by doing this and having that flexibility, you know, buildings do see significant revenue streams for doing so. When someone participates, are they getting the full differential between the amount that they paid and what they sell it back to in the grid? It's not going to be the full differential, but it's going to be the lion's share of that differential. As a um, demand response provider, uh, C-Power brokers that deal. So we're going to be working with those buildings to put together their curtailment plan. And we're also going to be dispatching the curtailment messaging when the grid is has a demand response event. Uh, those events can be anywhere from a 24-hour notice to a two-hour notice. And that really depends on what program they're participating in and really uh, the logistics and if they can in certain time frames. You know, some companies can't do the two hours, but some companies can actually flex that energy. And that's really up to them. And that's all part of our vetting process as we actually bring our clients on. To answer your question in terms of the, um, the revenue share, we actually do not charge uh, for any of this up front. What we're able to do is when we actually do bring on a demand response client, we're able to actually share in those revenues. And they will get the lion's share of that you know, to the tune of somewhere between 70%, 80%. And that really depends on kind of the work that gets involved in that. But that's a negotiable line item you know, that we can have with our clients. But they do see a meaningful uh, annual revenue stream for participating in demand response moving forward. So a building owner. Do they actually have to turn something on or off, or is this something that's done automatically based on their use? We try to stay away from the manual on and off. Um, that's how things were done, you know, maybe 10 years ago, you know, when we'd ask for a demand response call, you know, people would go up and possibly turn off a air conditioning system or things of that nature. But as automation has advanced, uh, we're actually able to do automated demand response calls where we have a tool called C-Power Link that will integrate with an open API application programmer interface with a BMS system, a building management system, where we can actually have a call from C-Power through our C-Power Link tool into a building management system to say, these are going to be your set points. This is the reduction that we need to uh, curtail the meaningful um, kilowatts or megawatts in a building for them to hit their curtailment goal to be rewarded the demand response revenues uh, for that building. Well, ultimately, we want to get to automation. And as new automating, automating companies are actually coming online with more efficient, uh, less expensive building control systems, we're starting, to see, we're starting to see a major adaption and adoption to demand response moving forward, where we're once seen as a class A type solution and type revenue stream can now come to, you know, smaller class A, higher class Bs who are now being able to automate through smart building infrastructure, their demand response calls. Define two things for our listeners. 
Matt, class A, smaller class A, class B. What what category of real estate are you talking about when when you say that? Yeah, let's take a step back and what that means. Uh, so class A, it, and there's really no um, specific criteria in which makes a class A versus a class B. This is really more realtor speak, but to really kind of give you the high level of that, a class A building is going to want to be one of your marquee trophy buildings, you know, buildings on Avenue of the Americas or on Fifth Ave, you know, that house law firms, banking, IT companies, and, and really high, high, high rent and slash high um, amenity type buildings are really looking at your class A's. You know, some of those owners are going to be your RXRs, your Boston Properties, your SL Greens, where Class B is really more your side streets, you know, the East 26th Street, the West 39th Street, those smaller buildings, you know, somewhere around 100,000 square feet to 50,000 square feet, maybe about 250,000 square feet, somewhere around those lines with less amenities, maybe a doorman, maybe not, typically not a walk-up. They'll have one elevator, but that's about it. A little less kind of shiny that's kind of the overall sense of what a class A and class B is. That's a definition from, from that point. So Matt, Matt, when it comes to these classes, so we typically work with older buildings only because we, I mean, how much can you mess up when they're an A building and they are already LEED certified and, or if they're a newer building. So for older buildings, we're much more successful in helping them. So is that a class B building? Older infrastructure does kind of kind of relate to that. Also, too, I think from a from a from an energy spe- uh, perspective, the Class A buildings are going to have more central plants, so big chillers, uh, maybe some cogen plants, you know, some big boilers, really kind of developing at a central level uh, where all the energy goes to, and where all the heating and cooling goes to in a property. Whereas Class Bs, you're really more looking more at a federated uh, HVAC systems. We're really looking at package units. For each each floor or each tenant, which really makes it kind of tougher to automate, it's actually easier to control your energy at a central plant level, at a building management system level. So they kind of had it from that component where we were able to have our calls out to those chief engineers to say, we're going to have to reduce your building by 500 kilowatts. Can you do that in the matter of 24 hours for the next day on the demand response call, those chief engineers would say, yes, we can. We're actually going to do our setbacks to our BMS system and take that accordingly. They would pre-cool the building. If it was a war- if it was a cool day, if it was electric heating, they preheat the building just to assure that that uh, comfort level would stay the same over the course of those four hours and get that done. That's, that's how it was once done. Now with the advent of, you know, more efficient building management systems, we're working with firms now that are able to do kind of one central control point and really federate those package units into one BMS cheaper and, and more efficient BMS system. So when buildings are called to demand to do demand response, these Class B buildings with these federated HVAC systems can now federate based on the smart building technology to reduce load and participate in demand response and make meaningful money doing so. And what is a federated? What did you say? Federated uh, package system? What is that? Unfederated. So that would just be a thermostat for one package unit. And that thermostat would be uh, would be um, used by the tenant. And that tenant really has free reign over all of that, where they could say, okay, I, I, I like it cold here. So we could actually have this set at 65 degrees. You know, and, and look at that at every single floor of a Class B building, you know, typically 12 to 14 floors. You're really looking at kind of a mishmash of, you know, warm versus cold. 
and it's really hard to uh, control all of that temperature based on, you know, you have lack of control. It's a resourceless, controlless building, you know, based on the nature of it. And really, it's at the hands of the tenants themselves. Now, moving forward, as you're looking at things like local on 97, you know, building owners are saying, oh, gosh, you know, we're, now we're going to have to really reduce our carbon emissions by really put, by putting controls into these buildings. So we're really taking the ownership away from the tenants to control their energy and really putting it back onto a BMS system to assure that these buildings are running optimally throughout the year. What you're saying is something that's federated is kind of put together into one building management system, BMS. Correct. So where you have it all broken down by floor and different thermostats and maybe multiple heating plants uh, or cooling plants, these controls then allow you to, as you say, federate it, bring it together and each one of them are somewhat being controlled separately, but they're being controlled separately in an automated way so that the building owner now has control over what's happening while still being able to provide the occupant with a comfortable environment. Well said. That's exactly what that means. And it's going to be a coordination now between owner and tenant. Now, because of things like Local on 97, and these owners are going to be get, get hit with major fines for not being able to control their uh, their carbon emissions. They're now reaching back out to their tenants and putting together green leases to let them know that we're going to have to be in coordination now to assure that we're in compliance with local I ninety seven. Otherwise, if we're not, you know, we're going to be hit with major fines come twenty twenty five. That conversation that the tenants going to have to have with their landlord, you know, and vice versa. But ultimately, though, it's one that we've been seeing. Um, be a lot easier than you expect, and there's a couple of reasons for that. I think um, you know, with you know the sustainability boom, with the wellness boom, you know, tenants are really becoming more progressive at what they want out of their building, and that is to be energy efficient. That is to be carbon efficient, and that's also to promote wellness within their energy space. And the way to do that is through controls and sensors, and that's what these BMS systems are doing at the Class B level. And also strike that too at, at the class A level as well. But what's nice about this, it's not going to be a situation where only your, you know, class A tenants are getting this level of, of, um, of, I guess, control and wellness and indoor air quality, you know, based on the really the acceleration of the building management world and the IOT sensors, Internet of Things sensors that are really starting to come together, we're really starting to see smart buildings really start getting adopted throughout uh, Manhattan and the outer boroughs. And I want to say that I hope everyone that's listening to this is uh, healthy and safe because uh, we are still dealing with a pandemic. And what is your opinion, Matt? And maybe Tina, you tell me too, uh, what you're seeing in terms of how is the pandemic accelerating uh, awareness with expense management and energy management? When it comes to expense management, we're seeing a lot of demand from boards that whenever they have uncertainty, they are normally more cost conscious. It seems to us that prior to the pandemic, people put our services on their wish list, but they didn't really have time for it. So the, some clients signed up, but some clients, they kind of like just put it off because it was a wish. And the pandemic has really made our services more urgent. And we think that that might be because of uh, uncertainty, that they're uncertain about incomes and expenses and where we're going and local on 
97, they're worried about getting fined. And the energy grade, energy star grade, they all have Ds, and they're all uh, unhappy about that. The grades. Which local law is that? The grades is number 33. Yeah, so uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But uh, getting back to you, Tina, with there being more of an incentive to control expenses, most of the clients that you deal with uh, own residential properties. So, Matt, now the flip side is I'm thinking most of the stuff you're dealing with is, and I could be wrong, is office and industrial. And, I mean, industrial is one thing, but office, I forget what the last figure was, but it's definitely under 30% occupancy, and here we are almost a year later. How is that How is that impacting what it is that you're doing? I mean, there is no demand, really, right, for the energy. The buildings still still need to operate, though. Funny enough, uh, we've seen, despite you know, despite you know, lack of occupancy, we've seen the energy usage still fairly high within New York. And the reason for that is that, particularly in these larger buildings, they still need to run their HVAC systems to assure that there's no buildup there. You know, to assure cleanliness, to assure wellness, to assure that those those systems are being flushed. You know, on a daily basis. You know, to assure that the thirty percent of the people that are there are ble- are breathing clean air. So, despite you know a lack of occupancy, the energy usage within these properties have stayed somewhat high. We're seeing a typical, I think, reduction now. The last numbers I saw were somewhere between twenty to thirty percent using less energy in 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 Manhattan. However, this is interesting, and I'm glad you you, you brought this up. Is that for the first time, and I believe ten plus years we saw a demand response call on a weekend. So what that means is the energy load is shifting. So people are no longer, well, I should say less people are going to these the uh, Manhattan office spaces, but working from home in the outer boroughs. And based on that, the energy load has shifted. So therefore, it's not as if the energy went away. It's just being used in different areas. So the mindfulness of the demand response side is that, um, you know, the, the give and take, you know, what, what was given, <laughs> what was given in Manhattan has now been, you know, taken to the outer boroughs. And we've got to be very careful of that because some of those outer boroughs infrastructure is not as strong as where, where you would say is in Manhattan. You know, so there's, we've got to be very careful of that, you know, as the energy usage starts to pick up with people working from home moving forward. So with that said, we've actually seen a, a, a higher adoption rate of, um, of residential demand response. You know, moving forward, which was once something that many people didn't get involved with, but people are actually being mindful of now and getting involved with because of um, local laws, number one, and two, uh, a nice revenue stream that could move forward based on the advent of this new technology to really implement, you know, less expensive building management systems at the residential level. So if, if we have a client building on the Upper East Side, it's a co-op that uses... 1.2 million kilowatt hours per year, but the commercial unit is using uh, 500,000 of that, and the residents are using 500,000 of that. Is that a, a good introduction for you? Is that a building that you could work with? Yeah, that is. And how we you know kind of assess an opportunity is we're going to be looking at the interval data of a building. And this is really how the the, the grid, the New York Independent Ser- Service Operators, the ISO, as we call it, looks at, you know, kind of the grid stability and, and where 
uh, that building at where that building is in terms of their usage. So we would look at the interval data that your building has, and that's 15-minute data that we get from Con Edison to see what your energy load profile is going to be. And we're going to take a look at that energy load profile at really when we're looking at the, the high demand response days. So in the summer between 4 and 8 p.m. And if it looks like there is enough to curtail there, uh, we can actually put in, you know, we will actually start doing that analysis and to see if the building does have the capability to curtail. You know, meaning can we shed 200 kW? Can we shed 300 kW uh, over the course of, you know, those four hours uh, in the summer? And we can go from there. We'll work with, um, you know, building operators, uh, typically at the residential level. Uh, they either have an energy manager, or energy manager and or super, and we'll work with both of them to do so. And uh, then we'll actually take a look at the smart building infrastructure, if they have it or not. If they don't, we work with a few vendors who do that smart building technologies for PTAC units, you know, if we're looking at, you know, electric uh, cooling. And also, we can even go as far as um, uh, window units as well, just small modules that we can help reduce by. You know, because what happens, um, you know, people can leave for work, just leave their, uh, leave their air conditioners on, just kind of sit and forget it, and like coming back to a nice, cool apartment. Can't blame them. I like doing that as well. but. It's one of those situations where if I knew that my air conditioning was responsible for that brownout or blackout, of course I'd curtail. But I don't know when that's going to happen. We do, and we'll actually work with that smart building infrastructure to curtail when that's happening, curtail the load to bring resiliency back to the grid and help compensate moving forward on that demand response revenue for curtailing. Uh, residential is um, an interesting an interesting uh, group to work with based on there's so many different tenants. How we work with that is we'll work through the condo board and have an opt-in and we'll say, okay, we'll be adding this device on your PTAC unit or on your window unit. And if you'd like to opt in for demand response, just say yes and we'll pay you accordingly. I'm listening to all of this and it sounds great. And I guess there are aspects of it uh, from the owner's point of view the the investment property owner's point of view, these are things that I kind of have to do by a certain period of time or I'm going to be fined for it. Like it sounds like, yeah, there's savings in energy. Uh, there's a possible revenue stream from the demand response program. But all this equipment sounds like it's going to be expensive. Is the net result going to cost me as a property owner? You know, we're going to look at Con Edison and NYSERDA. They're actually giving incentives for all this work and will have the demand response revenues pay for that device. So this is no out-of-pocket expense. I know what NYSERDA is. Explain to our listeners what NYSERDA is. NYSERDA is the New York State Energy and Research Development Authority. They are a public benefit company that works alongside Con Edison for the state of New York to assure that uh, there's environmental and energy justice through the state of New York. Uh, they're a fantastic company that uh, is funded by your bill's system benefit charge. When you pay electricity, there'll be an SBC charge on your bill. That goes to Con Edison, and that also goes to NYSERDA, that they're able to use this pool of money to incentivize back for energy efficiency. That's what NYSERDA does. It's a wonderful, wonderful organization who we work with quite a bit to assure that uh, what we're doing aligns with their goals as well in developing a more resilient New York and a cleaner New York and a more energy efficient New York. Is there an example of a particular case study that you could share with us where somebody did this and not necessarily one of the big A properties, but something that would be more typical 
here in one of the five boroughs where they went and they did this. They did have to retrofit the systems somewhat and what the net result was for them in terms of energy savings and increased revenue. We're working on a case study uh, for a small class B building, Midtown, West 39th Street. And uh, they, I've, I've known this, this uh, client for quite some time. And um, they have, uh, at my prior jobs, and they actually had reached out to me saying, Matt, what is demand response? I, I'd love to have this additional revenue, revenue stream in my building, but you know, why can't I participate in it? And I said, well, a couple of reasons for that. And that kind of addressed what we spoke to you know, earlier on in the, uh, the podcast about how you know, they don't have the smart building technologies to make this work. And he said, well, you know what? Uh, my thermostats are about end of life right now. We're, we're using some old I don't want to name drop uh, to hurt anybody here, but uh, so-and-so thermostats. And they're a bit finicky, but would love to update with something. And people are getting spoiled at home. The Nest thermostat is a nice thermostat. So why can't I have that similar technology for my building? You know, so, so because of, you know, the technology that we're, we're, we're getting, you know, used to and seeing the benefits of, you know, in our smart homes, uh, these buildings are starting to come along with it, you know, from a smart building infrastructure. To answer your question on the case study, um, it's starting to happen. And we're starting to put together financial models of NYSERDA's RTEM incentives, covering 30% of it, C-Power's demand response revenues, covering $10,000, $20,000 of it on an annual basis, and the energy savings you're seeing along with it as well to put that whole energy service agreement together to show a building that, yeah, this makes sense. Good news is it's actually very encouraging, and we can really have this all paid for within a matter of three years that all these numbers are starting to look very good, you know, for these properties to enable smart building technologies uh, in the form of enabling demand response, enabling smart controls, enabling indoor air quality sensors, and having these buildings become a smart building. We're really starting to see the smartification of the New York building stock, and it's all kind of happening in front of our eyes. So all these Class A's that have these nice Class A BMS systems and such, it's all starting to kind of come down to every building now within New York, you know, because of the infrastructure is becoming cheaper, the the technologies are becoming less expensive, and NYSERDA and Con Edison are incentivizing these systems to be implemented. So it all makes sense financially to make that happen. Well, I appreciate your transparency with regard to the case study in progress, and we look forward to the results of that. But based on what you described, it sounds like C-Power puts all this together for the client and shows them this is where we anticipate you being, you know, a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, and it includes everything that they need to do it, and it shows what the results will be, and then they can make an educated decision. Is that correct? I mean, are you handling all this for them? Yeah, we were talking about, you know, demand response, you know, which C-Power, C-Power obviously does, but it's really demand-side energy management. When you're talking about demand-side energy management, you're talking about energy management. So to be an energy manager, you have to manage the energy for the entire building. So yes, in our skin of the game is for demand response revenues, but as you're energy managing, you're really going to have to take a look at it from a holistic standpoint and really bring in these smart building technologies and really look at kind of with the market drivers, uh, such as, you know, their energy goals, look at their, um, the other, the other market drivers, such as local law 97 compliance and things of that nature to make this all work. And we'll be at the driver's seat of that to assure this all works well for our client, you know, who needs that guidance 
to make their building one that's going to be attractive in today's world. Tenants who are really looking for the best, you know, as far as energy efficiency, carbon carbon efficiency, and wellness within their property, were able to do that under the umbrella of demand response, but have demand response revenues pay for it, and then kind of step back and let the other technology solutions uh, really make that tenant experience a very good one. So are you introducing them to all the vendors that deal with these different automated systems? It's one way or the other. You know, it's either we're introducing them or it's our vendors out there doing doing the same and they're pitching their smart building technologies and they may receive pushback of, well, we don't think we're going to be able to afford this. What would you consider doing demand response to help provide an annual an, an annual uh, GR revenue stream to help pay pay and shorten the ROI horizon on the smart building infrastructure? Of course. So it's a good way to kind of make that happen as far as everybody playing well in the sandbox. Quick little break here, Realty Speak fans, to take a moment to share with you that I love that you choose to listen and learn from Realty Speak. We go deep with so many topics on the show. The result? You get plenty of great information and strategies you can use. And what I learned from my guest as the creator and host of Realty Speak translates to me being the best I can be as a trusted advisor, consultant, and real estate broker. Remember, every transaction is different. And so are you, the people involved. A successful outcome will depend on execution of proper planning. And I welcome the opportunity to listen closely to your desired outcome and then carefully guide you through the process to ultimately achieve your goals. So if you're contemplating a purchase into your portfolio or a sale out of your portfolio of a building or development site, or you would like to refinance, get a purchase mortgage or construction loan on investment real estate, then feel free to reach out to me. I can help you no matter where you're located. Happy to chat. No transaction required. Call me. The number 917-232-8529. And all my contact info is on the contact page of my website, billwidener.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. What else can I say? Real estate is in my DNA. And now back to the show. Tina, Matt, we've been talking about energy savings and demand response. And I just want to clarify, I mean, there's lots of different sources of energy. There's oil, there's natural gas, there's electricity. Everything that we're discussing today just has to do with electricity. Is that correct? That's correct. It's electricity only. Yeah, I second that. And reason why you know, electricity is, uh, first and foremost, with electricity is actually a cleaner heat and a cleaner overall. And the reason why we're, we're talking about electricity is, is that come 2040, through uh, Governor Cuomo's re- reforming the energy vision. Uh, they're putting money into renewables. and They'd like to see all the electricity in New York become 100% renewable by 2040, which means all these electricity that these buildings are going to be using will be clean electricity, which is fascinating when you really look at it and New York decarbonizing. So as it relates to gas and oil, as it relates to gas and oil, um, you know, by 2024, 2025, as I see the local on 97 thresholds, buildings can still, you know, kind of be under that threshold somewhat, not saying all of them, but some of them can, but by 2030, those thresholds become a lot more stringent 
and gas and oil are going to start going away. You know, so people are going to be looking at heating through electric and, 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 and cooling through electric, obviously. And it's going to be decarbonization through electrification, which makes demand response even more important because as electricity, more electricity is coming onto that grid, that grid is going to have to be managed even more so uh, to prevent blackouts and brownouts. We have listeners and they're, they have buildings and they're thinking, hey, maybe this is something I want to do. But there must be a threshold where they can participate or not participate. What is that threshold in terms of electricity use? The threshold is 100 kilowatts annually. So if you're able to uh, reduce or curtail 100 kilowatts of energy in a building, you're able to participate in demand response. That's not to say that buildings that can't shed 100 kW aren't allowed to participate. That 100 kW, that's for one building. However, you know, based on the strength of Power's portfolio, we aggregate. So we can take a building that's able to shed 20 or 30 kW and aggregate them with the rest of our portfolio so that there's no really barrier of entry there. I think uh, you're going to see a lot more de- lot more uh, buildings coming into demand response, you know, based on, you know, I shouldn't say the requirement to do so, but really kind of the need to do so as New York really starts to electrify that, you know, buildings are going to have to really understand where they can flex energy and where they can't flex energy and uh, how that relates to the grid to assure stability and continuity so there's no brownouts or blackouts. For example, that building that I talked about on West 39th Street, they're only shedding 30 to 40 kW per year. Um, you know, so that's not the 100 kW, but we're able to actually aggregate them within our portfolio of clients to obviously get well above 100 kW and to be able to shed that. And, he, and that 30 to 40 kW, you know, could be somewhat meaningful. We're looking somewhere between eight to 10,000 annually a year of a new revenue stream to come in. For a small building owner, an extra $10,000, you know, certainly helps. Let me ask you this. If a building already has an ESCO, meaning they're not buying their electricity from Con Edison, they're buying it from a different supplier, is that fine? That has nothing to do with your side, right? We do work with ESCOs and suppliers to allow for the cheapest energy rate. And how we do that is actually through peak demand management. Peak demand management aligns with demand response. When the system peaks, when the New York grid peaks, that's going to be for 15 minutes for one point in the summer of that particular year. And what we do is we actually work with our clients along with demand response, but to call that time and when that's going to peak. We don't know when it's going to happen, but just based on our historical data and based on us our, us looking at the grid and us looking you know, at, at Con Edison and, and the grid in general, we can make a pretty good guess at when that's going to happen. So if that's going, if that's going to be the case and you'd actually like to participate in peak demand management, we'll give that building a call to say, you know, we, we think that the system's going to peak around now, typically somewhere around 4 o'clock July or August. And if you're able to do that, you're actually able to shed and curtail that load. Your capacity tag is actually a lot lower. And with a lower capacity tag, that means lower energy because you're less of a threat to the grid uh, based on that lowered energy. So you can actually take that capacity tag savings and put that back into your supply contract to have a cheaper supply contract. So that's actually how well we work with those ESCOs in terms of a nice one-two punch and lowering that energy spend for for the client. Most of our clients, they're old buildings and they have steam heat. Can you still work with those buildings? I know exactly the buildings you're, you're thinking of. It's just the, the one boiler, big boiler in the basement. And uh, they, have, they, have the, they, have, they have the radiators and those radiators are cranked to 100%, you know, basically from, from November to, to, to March. 
um, those buildings are really going to have to start looking at uh, local on 97 because those are the most inefficient buildings. Matter of fact, you know, there was a study done um, by one of the larger uh, energy management firms in New York that I think the, the, the biggest chunk of buildings, that building market, are those medium-sized residential buildings in the outer boroughs. They're going to get hit hardest with local on 97 electric heat's going to have to be put into those buildings some some form or another, which could be very expensive. But, you know, it, it, when you're looking at that return on investment, you've got to, you got to consider demand response to that as well. Because if you're heating by electric, you can actually participate in the winter in demand response. So you can actually put in that nice revenue stream. These pre-war buildings, albeit gorgeous, really well built, lived in one myself in Astoria for seven years, does not have smart building infrastructure because they didn't need it. But now, you know, based on uh, boilers, you know, having kind of crosshairs on them, not by 2025, but by 2030, there's going to have to be a considerable conversation that, that these condo boards are going to have to have of how are we going to get rid of this boiler and still heat the place. And that's going to be moving forward with electrified heat. New York State is putting billions of dollars towards this. NYSERDA is putting multi, multi-million dollars towards this to have this all happen. And we're starting to see that adapt now. And uh, matter of fact, we're actually working on a few um, few projects in the city at this point. What the cost is going to be to electrify, and if it, and since it's electrified, you can actually now control that by by um, by by smart thermostats and building management systems. So therefore, you can actually flex that energy in the summer when you're cooling, and in the winter when you're heating, to really earn demand response revenue all the way around. So we can really shorten that ROI horizon on that clean heat project uh, for your buildings. So originally, I was thinking, you know, if a building had a boiler, it was either gas or oil, but you really enlightened us, both of you, Tina asking that question and Matt, you explaining that eventually it will have to be a reduction in the use of oil and gas to heat a building and an increase in the use of electricity. And then they'll be able to, of course, because they'll have the kilowatt threshold, participate in demand response. This is incredibly informative. I'm learning so much. I'm sure the listeners are too. I wanted to leave a little time just to maybe give an outline of the different energy consumption local laws in the city of New York. Either one of you, because I know you're both familiar with these. We have Local Law 97, which is the Climate Mobilization Act, and that's the one with the grades from A to D, is it, right? A to D? No, it's A to D, and then there's also an F if you didn't file. Oh, it's A to F. Oh, oh, if you didn't file. Okay. So F for file did not. Okay. <laughs> All right. And then and then do, it, do it remember. Yeah, yeah. And 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 then you know, I, I I guess when they have a local law and you don't follow it, you get fined. So that's something that people need to hit, uh, to take into consideration. But we're we're not gonna get into the fine part of it. I think everyone knows that it's there and it's frustrating. And I hope that we can make this transition collectively in a way that is positive for everybody and that it doesn't cost a lot of money because there are a lot of other challenges that property owners are dealing with right now, uh, not only because of some of the laws that impacted residential rents uh, back in 2019, the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act. And you probably hear me talk about that in every single episode that I do. I'm not a big fan of it. And also uh, how the pandemic has exacerbated that. Uh, so these local laws do become burdensome. 
However, we are dealing with climate change and we're trying to become more energy efficient and not spew a lot of toxins into our environment and be gentler to the earth around us and our environment so that our children and grandchildren have a great world to live in. And now I'm going to get off my soapbox and go back to the <laughs> go back to the topic which is a little outline of the local laws. So we have Local Law 97 Climate Mobilization Act Local Law 87, Greener, Greater Building Plan, and then Local Law 84, which is the same thing, so I don't know if they're redundant. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. Local Law 33, which is the Energy Star letter grades. Oh, that's the one with the letter grades, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Local okay. Law 33. But 97 still has something to do with that? Sort of. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yes, yes right. and no. <laughs> And yeah, and then local law ninety two and ninety four. You know what? I invite everybody to go to the New York City Council uh, website and and actually spend some time there and look at all the different legislation that comes out. Uh, they call them introductions, and then they become local laws, and you can follow the progress of each one. There's just so much material there. I, I don't know how the City Council does it, um, and. I still don't understand why we have so many different local laws that cover the same thing instead of just one, but uh, maybe you guys can shed some light on that. Who wants to go first? I'll go first. So I'm going to talk about the four. This is how I see the differences between them. So uh, when it comes to local law 33, 84, 87, and 97, they are very related in mm -hmm. in my opinion. So Local Law 33 is the one where you report the, in the Energy Star Portfolio Manager your usage. And then you get a grade, and the first grade, you're going to get a new grade every single year, and the first grade came out this October. So October of 2020. Yes, it came out already. So Buildings should have this in their lobby. Most of them don't, but uh, they might have them in the super surface or something. The ones that were prior to this was Local Law 84 was the benchmarking law where buildings were required over a certain size. I believe that initially was 50,000 square feet, but then it went down to 25,000, where all buildings had to report how much their energy, how much energy they were using, energy and water, but they didn't have to do anything about it. And then for Local Law 87, they had to report and then they had to retrofit to reduce how much they were using, how much energy they were using. And so was there a percentage of energy from the original reporting that they had to reduce it in order to be in compliance? No. So Local Law 84, the law is that they have to file. That's As long as they file, that's, that's the end of that law. Right. But then the second one you talked about is Local Law what? 87. Right. And that one, they have to retrofit, but there was no, if they don't retrofit, then it doesn't matter. So, <laughs> so what happened? Why doesn't it matter? What happened was that we very often saw these fancy local law 87 reports from buildings and buildings didn't do anything about it. They had these rest retrofit report that they had paid thousands of dollars for but they didn't do anything about it. So they were still using the same amount of energy as they were before. But then when it comes to local law 97, they're actually going to get fined. And 
I think that that is really what is making the making both 84 and 87 being able to actually make an impact. It's they tried it before and nothing happened. They tried two different laws, nothing happened. Now they're going to get fined and we're seeing buildings that are going to be fined by 2030 over 100,000 a year and it's going to cost them way too much so they have to do something about it. So 84 was report what energy I'm using. 87 was I'm supposed to retrofit, but I really don't have to do anything about it because there's no penalty. And then 97 is what brings the penalty in so that you do do something about it. Yes. And then 33 is the Energy Star letter grades. And that's what came out in October, A through D or F for file did not. And, uh, all right, so that leaves 92 and 94, solar green roofs. How, how does that play into all this? I don't know, Matt, you want to give that one a stab? You know, very good job with uh, 84, 87. 92 and 94 are actually really interesting ones. That is requiring buildings to either have solar or a green roof or both on their rooftops moving forward. And how they're going to be rolling out that law is anytime you pull a permit to do any work on your roof, that permit needs to have plans within it to install a green roof or solar. What's going to be happening over the course of from now till we have solar on every building over 25,000 square feet moving forward is the adoption of renewable energy in New York. These buildings of that size are going to be either having green roof or, or solar to, um, to help generate energy and to help mitigate something that's called city warming. It's an an heat incubation where these buildings are basically transmitters of energy. So all these black rooftops are getting hit with with sun, you know, throughout the hottest times of the day, which is midday. But when five or six o'clock comes around, the buildings start emitting that heat, which actually really keeps New York at a very, like two or three or four degrees higher than what it should be without uh, green roofs. But with the green roofs, what the green roofs will do is that actually absorbs all that heat thus will lower the overall heat of New York, which in turn lets people use less cooling throughout the day. And solar, you're generating energy for your property or selling it back to the grid, depending on actually how you want that solution to work uh, for your property. So that's 92 and 94. Look around in New York these days, take a look at the rooftops now. I think you're probably surprised at how many more solar you'll see than typically. Five years from now, you're going to see a lot more solar on there, a lot more green roofs. That law is here to stay and can't move forward with any roof project without having something on there, whether that's me retiring, redoing the roof, what have you. Um, you're going have to have to have to have those two items, one of the two items on that roof to uh, comply with uh, 92 and 94. Thank you both. That was great. Now I understand. And I think our listeners understand at a greater level as well. And as our time together draws to a close, I actually have one more question for both of you before we go. Tina, I want you to go first and then Matt. If you woke up tomorrow and something in the world of energy consumption changed, what do you wish that would be? I wish that being able to convert a building from being on an old boiler with a steam heating system and electrifying that building would be affordable. Because right now, that is not an option for all of our clients. It is something that is so cost prohibitive 
that they're never going to be able to do it and they're going to be stuck with a D for the rest of their lives. Thank you, Tina. And Matt? Yeah, thank you, Tina. And, and following up to that, uh, and, and on that, in that same vein, is that uh, the construct of Local Law 97 as it stands now does have those you know, gas-fed and oil-fed boilers uh, in the crosshairs. But agreeing with Tina that the uh, price to do that retrofit uh, is is exorbitant, and a lot of these buildings can't can't uh, can't can't do it from a price perspective, even with incentives and things of that nature. Um, what I'd like is that uh, the Department of Buildings really starts putting um, some more context around local law ninety seven, and, um, and 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 that that discussion starts moving forward more so as people are willing to decarbonize. It's just a matter of having the feasibility of how they do it be more of reality. So that's what I'd wish for. Thank you both. That was powerful. Pun intended again. <laughs> so we had an energetic and powerful discussion today. And if our listeners want to get in touch with either one of you, Tina, how do people get in touch with you? They can call me at 917-648-8151 or go to my website and email me. And what's the website? www.thefolsongroup.com. And how do you spell Folson? F-O-L-S-O-N as in Nancy, group. All right, great. And Matt, how do people get in touch with Matthew McHugh? Sure, yeah. My cell phone is 646-627-6758. Thanks, Bill. That'll be in the show notes, Realty Speak fans, so you don't have to worry about writing it down. Just look in the show notes, either on the episode page of the website or in your favorite podcast app. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Tina, for co-hosting. Thank you so much, Bill, for having me back. This was great and so great to speak with you, Matt, too. Yeah, thank you, Bill, and thank you, Tina. Great conversation. Had a great time. And uh, looking forward to doing it again. Well, there you have it. Everyone, thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of Realty Speak, the New York City-focused podcast. Please subscribe. You can do so on the website. Just go to the podcast page on the website, and there is an opt-in option at the top of the page. Or search for Realty Speak on your favorite podcast app, like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices, or Apple Podcasts for an iPhone. Find it, open it, hit subscribe, and you're in. And please help Realty Speak grow by sharing the show with others. From the website player, just click share and choose your preferred social media platform. And of course, if you'd like to talk about purchasing, selling, or financing investment real estate, access past episodes, or just chat, you can contact me directly via the website at BillWidener.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember... It's not about us, but how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time.